Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast. Today's episode is with Charles Bronfman. Charles Bronfman, the former owner of the Montreal Expos, he owned the team from 1969 through 19, till 1991. Uh, he was also a, um, a member, of course, of the illustrious Bronfman family <coughs> of uh, Seagram's fame. Uh, his brother Edgar was the CEO of the company, as was his father. And uh, he wrote, has a new book called Distilled, in which he talks about his relationships with his family, uh, the Seagram's fortune, his time with the Montreal Expos, and all that stuff. Interesting uh, interesting read, for sure. And so we got into all that stuff, his uh, family history, time with the Expos, lots of things like that. I first met Charles when I interviewed him for my Expos book, Up, Up, and Away, which is great if you haven't read it, by the way. Um, well, I guess that's self-aggrandizing. I think it's great. Maybe you will. And uh, it was an interesting chat then, so I was eager to follow up with him this time, and I hope that you enjoy this uh, interesting and far-reaching conversation. Um, also, coming off of a weekend in Cooperstown, I just want to say a sincere thank you to, uh, gosh, everybody who made that, this past weekend really great. Um, random people chatting in the street to good friends that I got to see. Uh, got to see my family, hung out with my family, which was nice. Um and yeah, it meant a lot. Tim Raines in his induction speech said some nice things about me, which was overwhelming and completely unnecessary and kind of untrue since he would have gotten into the Hall of Fame, even if I never existed on Earth. But it was really nice of him to give me credit and say all the nice things that he did. And I really, really appreciate it. Uh, he is a swell guy. And uh, yeah, I'm very happy for him that he's in the Hall of Fame. It was a pretty, pretty cool, pretty emotional weekend all around. And uh all the more good. His plaque is now resting in Cooperstown alongside Babe Ruth and Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and everybody else. Pretty neat. So yeah, enjoy this episode of the Jonah Carey Podcast. It is with Charles Bronfman. I mean, very close to your face, but whatever is comfortable. And we're already starting. It's very uh, simple and casual. Okay. Um, yeah, I was saying to you before that I found the book to have a lot of, it was called Distilled, and I found the book to have a lot of humanity in it in a way that you don't know you're going to get. You know, when there's yeah. kind of a titan of industry and, oh, let me tell you about my conquests. Let me tell you about how great I am. And And almost from page one, it's, these are my insecurities. These are the things that I dealt with. As you said, well into your thirties, and, and uh, I'm wondering when you were setting the tone for this thing, if that was sort of a stated goal. Oh, I'm going to lay it all bare and make clear that I'm, you know, I, I've had a lot of difficulties in my life. Well, I think uh, I decided if I was going to do a biography at my tender age, yeah, I might just want to tell the truth, and so I decided to do that uh, number one, so that my grandchildren would really know who their pops was, mm -hmm. although I was going to do a private thing just for them. Oh. Uh, but then I said, you know, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from my life, that whether you're wealthy or not wealthy, uh, there are sibling stuff and family relationships and 
business and family business and uh, slow starters uh, who can overcome their own deficiencies. Uh, a lot of stuff. And as far as, as uh, slow starters and so forth, you know, obviously in some ways you're afforded obvious advantages when you come from an area of security, just knowing, okay, this is where my next meal is going to come from and so forth. But in terms of self-esteem and, and really figuring out who you are and all that, it seems like these things are connected, that, that um, being somewhat sheltered and also having to live up to the standard of your father, who was a great man, I would imagine that would have to be very difficult. Well, for some, in some families, it's easier. And for, yeah. for me, yeah, that was tough, except I never wanted to uh, uh, to conquer him. I knew I couldn't. Yeah. And so I never wanted to get into a father-son fight. My brother, unfortunately, did. Yeah. Uh, which caused problems, uh, insoluble problems, which I say uh, later on in his life. Uh, well, I started doing better. Yeah. And uh, then came the denouement, as we say, mm -hmm. and uh, that was very difficult. And, and then as far as just the day-to-day, -day, God, one thing that struck me, it was a little detail, but you were talking about the way that children play. You know, that you go to the park and you see your chums and so forth, yeah. and that that wasn't afforded to you. You couldn't just tootle off to the park. You had to be at your own place, and you couldn't necessarily get the kids from the neighborhood to come visit. You know, at the time, whatever existence you have is obviously that's your version of normal, but did you ever step outside yourself and say, I wish I was on the slides, I wish I was doing this thing when you were 9 or 12 or 15? Well, actually, uh, by the time we were 12 and 14 or 15, yeah. uh, we did do that. We would take our bikes and we'd go okay. to a neighboring street and we'd have fun with, the, uh, with our neighbors. Right. So, you know, I don't think we were... We knew we were living a restricted life. At least I didn't. Right. Uh, and I couldn't get very impressed with the idea that we lived in a bigger house than our friends did. Right. Uh, all these things were sort of, okay, that, that's what it is. Right. And then, you know, you talk about uh, the way that confidence is developed, and I was struck by the way that you got into the family business. One thing that I want to get to before we jump to that is uh, you were at McGill, and you made the decision to leave McGill. Now, again, there's a huge caveat here, which is that you have a safety net financially. If you were not in college, that's fine. But this generation in particular, it seems to me, wrestles with that a little bit because there's entrepreneurs and kids who are 17 can make a doodad and then they are a dot-com billionaire. And it's, it's a funny thing about that. And so I'm wondering, you know, it feels like the, the status quo is to say, and you know, education is great. Make sure to get an education and so forth. But... It worked out for you. I know many people who don't have that wealth. It worked out for them. Uh, you know, what do you see as the pluses and minuses of going down the traditional path of I'm going to get my BA or my MBA and so forth? You obviously didn't go in that direction. Well, it wasn't that I didn't go. It was I couldn't go. Yeah. Because uh, I was going to uh, fail, and my doctor said to my dad, you better get him the hell out of there. Huh. Uh, and so I got out of there. Uh, but I think... For most people, yeah, most people, uh, they want to go into business. An MBA is a very good thing to have because you learn an awful lot. And particularly if you use the case study method, uh, it, it's damn good because uh, you start to understand the way the real world works. Right. One of the problems about uh, staying too long in university is you're always in business for yourself, and you don't realize that when you're out of there. Uh, you're going to have to work with people 
you have to work on teams, uh, and it's the team that matters. That's why sports is so important. It's the team that matters, and uh, I, th- I think that's why I've always sort of liked playing sports because I love being on a team. Hmm. Um, and then, as you said, case studies, you obviously went the practical way. You started working for Adams, one of the divisions of Seagram's, and it wasn't a particularly, it wasn't a powerhouse necessarily, and uh, you were able to really revive it and make some things work. Yeah, but that was my Harvard Business School. Well, right. That really, was basically it, your case it really study. was. And what I did was we lost money the first year mm-hmm. and never again. And uh, I, I remember saying to uh, my colleagues at the Adams Company, who were worried about competing with uh, Seagram's VO. And I said to them one day, you know, it's very nice of you guys to worry about my family, but that doesn't have any money in your pocket now. To hell with Seagram's VO, you go out and sell Adam's Antique against it. And uh, we had a lot of fun uh, in, in being down and dirty and improving ourselves and myself to be able to fight at any level you want to fight. And discussed in the book, but take me through a little bit. What does Down and Dirty look like 60 years ago in the liquor business? How are you well, finding that? It, it, it really meant that you give uh, an extra bottle a case or something like yeah. that. Uh, and so we'd do that, and if somebody was giving uh, $2 a case incentive or a bottle, we'd give three. Yeah. Uh, we had to put ourselves on the map somehow because we really weren't known. It was fun. And I lived through all, all kinds of stuff. There was one guy who we caught stealing from us. Wow. And uh, and we didn't know who it was. And then uh, my colleague in Ontario found out who it was. And I remember going to Toronto. And the uh, guy from the credit company, uh, bonding company, he mm. was there. He had the coldest blue eyes I'd ever seen. Huh. And this poor guy was in the room. He had been a football player. Yeah. And uh, this guy was just looking at him, and I finally looked at him, and I said, so-and-so, uh, you say that you love the sales manager. If you really do, tell me the full amount. And he did. Hmm. And we had another fellow who everybody thought was in on the scheme because the former football player uh, unfortunately, he wasn't bright enough to, to figure it all out. Right. And this other man was, but we couldn't prove it. He turned out to be the lo- most loyal, wonderful guy wow. for the rest of his career. And I guess judging people would be a b- big part of that, and, and management style would be a big part of it. And you talked about the differences between you and your brother, Edgar, that he was a uh, top-down approach, you know, that he saw himself as that yeah. kind of CEO, whereas you wanted to learn everything. You wanted to learn from the bottom up, and you wanted to get, get your hands dirty in parts of the business. Tell me about the advantages and disadvantages of both. I've heard that both of those methods can be successful when it comes to running yeah, a company. Yeah, they can. They can be yeah. successful. I think it depends on your personality. Right. Uh, as to which way you want to go. Uh, I was never a money student. I was a people student. Hmm. And uh, I think Edgar was more of a, a money student. And God bless him. That was, that was fine with me. And also just... I love your description of the four of you growing up, that you each had an archetype and that you were the pleaser. Not for nothing, but I consider myself to be that way, too. I'm not a combative person at all. When you have that ingrained in you, though, and you're trying to run a business, you're trying to, certainly somebody's stealing from you, but even if you're trying to be hard-nosed, how do you balance that pleaser personality with, you know what, i got to get a little tough sometimes? 
Well, you just do it. I mean, even a pleaser doesn't please all the time. True. Uh, you stand. You stand for what you stand for. Yeah. And uh, I don't brook any nonsense. I never did. So that kind of thing. I'll never forget one time uh, when I was pretty darn young, and the uh, chair of the Canadian company, and I would go to these industry meetings, and he came. He said to me one day, "Oh, Charles is wonderful. Everybody loves you in the industry." <laughs> and I said, "Jim, there's Jack that wouldn't." The day you say somebody's scared of me, then I'll know I'm doing a good job. Huh. Well, and of course, that was, to some extent, Edgar's personality, but certainly your dad's personality. I mean, very much uh, what you think of as that sort of grand titan of industry ruling with an iron fist and so forth. Uh, considering that wasn't your personality, were there still lessons to take away from what, the way your dad went about it? Oh, yeah. He, he knew everything about his business. Right. He just knew it all. And I used to ask uh, a colleague in Canada uh, who was headed up our production, I said, Jack, how long would it take the boss if he really wanted to catch us? And don't forget, he would spend uh, four and a half days in, in New York at that time yeah. and half a day in, in Canada. And he said, uh, and asked me that question, he said, well, maybe two minutes. <laughs> wow. And it was true. I mean, the, the man, I remember one time there was a, we had an agent in the province of Canada where nobody lives called Newfoundland. Yes. And if you've seen the play Come From Away, there's a great play about uh, how the 7,000 inhabitants of Gander, Newfoundland, dealt with the 7,000 people who came in 9-11 and the day after. Yes. Uh, on all those aircraft. Uh, and... <coughs> And this man came in, he was our agent, very, very nice man. And he sat down with my dad, and I was in his office, because it was part of my responsibility. And dad started asking questions, how's this brand going, how's that brand going? And he tripped up this agent of ours, who was selling in Newfoundland. Now, at that time, maybe Canada was responsible for 8% of our total business. Newfoundland was about 2% of our Canadian business, and yet my dad knew the numbers. It's an amazing and, thing to be that detail-oriented. New York, go figure. Yeah, <laughs> to be that detail-oriented is just incredible. And the other thing that struck me, you know, there was a paradox with your dad, because in terms of parenting style, you know, there was a little bit of instilling fear. Like, it didn't seem like he had that different a personality as a father than he did as a CEO. At least that's the way that I read it. And I'm wondering, you know, you raised a, a family yourself, of course, um, did you go a different way? Did you take a softer touch with, you know, oh, I have Stephen now. Okay, so do, do no, other I, lessons? No, I was softer. So. Yeah. But Stephen happened to have been a tough kid to bring up. Huh. I was malleable when, when I was a kid. Right. Uh, my daughter was also easy to bring up. Stephen was a, a rebel. Hmm. And I remember one time he said to me, uh, he's four years old, he said, you're not the boss of me, I'm the boss of myself. And then later on in life when I asked him what he wanted to do, he said, uh, I want to walk into your office one day and said, Dad, this is what I'm going to do, and you don't know anything about it. Did you appreciate that independent streak, or did it oh, kind of yeah. take you aback? Oh, you well, liked it. It, it, it. it made him tougher to bring up, but he sort of knew that he'd make it. Hmm. And uh, I remember her, his mother and I would always have uh, discussions, so we say. She thought that he would... Uh, do something terrible to himself. And I would say to her, he's never going to do that. You go to the edge, you'll never go over the cliff. 
it's interesting about empowering children in that way. I've got young children myself, and just figuring it out, do you allow them to fail? Maybe you do. Maybe maybe the idea of, oh, I'm going to solve their problems is, is unrealistic, I guess. I think you solve, solve their problems up to a certain age or right. a certain amount of problems. Yes. And then you figure out if they're going to keep on doing it. Let them, let them find out the hard way. And the idea of confidence as well, you, you, you said in the book, and I've heard you say it in other places, that it was honestly owning a baseball team that had a lot to do with it, that your mother was pushing you to be part of the symphony, which you hated. Uh, it's a famous story that you've told. And, and that this was your thing, that, you know, uh, Seagram's came, your dad was, uh, you ended up having responsibility there too, but that had come from him. And that the symphony was your mother's thing, and that this was your thing and your way to make it in the world, but you also talked about just the self-assurance of having mastery over something. This was something over which it seemed that you had mastery when you owned the baseball team. Well, I had not mastery of the, of the team because, uh, you know, the professionals ran the team. Sure, yeah. Uh, I was the biggest fan, of course. But just knowing that I could be the front person for the team right. and I could uh, handle the media... Uh, and I could put the face on the team that hopefully uh, would sell a lot of tickets. Uh, that meant a lot to me. It And also, you know, with owners, I think for those of us who have not owned a sports franchise, which is the vast majority of us, there, there's sort of a question of why you do it. That one would be, maybe it's an ego stroke. It's, oh, I get to right. do this. And one would be financial. You know, maybe there's money to be made. Turned out there was in your case. But I was so struck in the book. And the first time that I met you, you talked about this too. You just really love Canada. And it was such a yeah. point. You're yeah. crying on opening day in 1969. Take me through that day of the first game and you're with the Prime Minister and with Drapeau and, 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 and this is happening. And, and what went through your mind? Well, the first game actually was here in New York. Right in New York. Then it was in Montreal, yeah. The Prime Minister was in there. I see Mr. Drapeau. And Maureen Forrester, great uh, soprano. Yep. was saying O Canada with uh, the uh, the band from the Collège Militaire Royal which came up to New York wow. and there were 40,000 Americans standing on their feet for our anthem Yeah. oh boy that was something else the other thing I remember about that game is very funny uh, it's funny the things you remember yeah. was Drapo looking at me and he pointed to the sky and there was an airplane going over uh, Shea Steve he said how can they allow that how can <laughs> having an airplane go over while the baseball is going on. He said, I've never happened in Montreal. Uh, <laughs> he would put the stadium somewhere else, and he certainly did. He sure did. A terrible location. Well, uh, we need to talk Not about... an awful stadium. <laughs> both, both of the ballparks had flaws, in the, and the first one was such an interesting story, and, and I discuss it in my book a little bit too, but for people who don't know what Jerry Park was before it became a baseball stadium... It was nothing, right? It was a couple of rickety bleachers, basically. Yeah, I, I never saw it even. Yeah. And, well, I did see it after uh, Warren Giles had looked at it with the uh, with Russ Taylor, and uh, there was another Desjardins, I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they had taken him to it. I didn't even know anything was going on. And he said, yes, it could become a, a, a ballpark. I don't know if he said Major League, but... <laughs> <laughs> And there had been a, apparently some junior game going on that night. Yeah. And uh, it was fabulous. The, you know, even the seats were the wrong 
facing the wrong way. They're facing towards the outfield. <laughs> most of the action in baseball is in the, the infield, infield, yeah. But they're facing the outfield. I, I spent hours, literally, trying to figure out how the heck could you double deck this thing and, and play football and baseball. Oh. And uh, the problem was, and, and the multi-purpose media in this country found that out. Football is measured in yards. Yeah. Baseball is feet. And that's it. That's really the defining. And Canadian football had a larger end zone than American football. Right. And I think it also had 110 yards Correct. versus 100. So it made it even more difficult to fit both into the same uh, arena. And just to underscore some stories from Jerry Park, uh, one of my favorites is there were basically eight months to turn this into a stadium ten times the size of what it was. Right. And, and because there was a, such horrendous weather and it was such a quick schedule, the night before, uh, there were chairs brought in from a funeral home which were being oh, unfolded. I, I didn't know that. Yes, that's right. Well, I, and I talked to Dave Van Horn about this too. <laughs> and, and, and my favorite is, it's not just that there were, I don't know, 6,000 chairs from a funeral home. It's that Jim Fanning was one of the people who was unfolding them. Now, Jim Fanning was a do-it-all guy and a wonderful yeah, human yeah, being and all that stuff. Yeah. But if you can imagine the Theo Epstein equivalent yeah. getting into Wrigley Field and unfolding 6,000 chairs the night before, that just slays well, unfortunately, me. Unfortunately, in those days, there was no Theo Epstein. No. Nor anybody who thought that way. No, not at all. One of the problems, I think, in those days was they were all old-fashioned ball, ball people. Yeah. I remember one time in spring training, uh, Andre Scalaraga was having a very tough time. And I went to Murray Cook. And he, he couldn't even get the ball out of the infield. Yeah. And I went to Murray Cook and I said, the hell's the matter with Andre? Oh, he said he's just a happy-go-lucky Venezuelan. Then I spoke to the trainer. I said, uh, Gallus having a terrible time hitting the ball out of the infield. He said, well, he should. I said, what do you mean? He said, that guy is standing in the, in the batting practice for hours on end at his hands for like raw meat. Oh. Well, there's the difference. There's the guy who knows, the guy who doesn't know. Yeah. Because they had, in baseball, they had all these prejudices about who was a white ball player, a black ball player, mm-hmm. did you come from California, did you come from the South, uh, were you a Latin ball player, and everybody was stereotyped, which was nuts. Yeah. Nuts. It came up with Felipe Alou, too, who was clearly a brilliant baseball man, but it took him so long to get the job that he deserved. I remember asking about him. Yeah. And I I asked the guys, I said, you know, there's this manager at Class A in Palm Beach, Felipe Alou, why don't we give him a shot? Oh, no, he couldn't handle the media, he couldn't handle Oh, jeez. Yeah, that stuff is really difficult. And and yet, he can't impose. I could never have said, well... I don't give it to him, you're going to make Felipe Lou the manager. They would have found a way to get rid of him. Yeah, as you... Because that sort of thing, you either are going to be a Steinbrenner or you're going to be a Brosman. And never the twain shall meet. And as you said, you didn't really intervene in baseball matters. And the only time that you basically did was to say, we need to develop the best farm system because free agents weren't going to come to Montreal. Uh, And you could tell people about what was the first step that you made when you decided you were going to make that move, the meeting that you had in Palm Beach with all the employees, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, we had uh, all the coaches and the managers and uh, everybody from the executives from the, the minor leagues. Uh, not the managers and not the field personnel, but the uh, the others. Player development staff. Player development staff. Yeah. And uh, I got the approval from my partners and from John McHale, our president. And I told them that uh, we were going to have the best 
farm team in baseball, or farm system in baseball, and that we were going to pay more than anybody else. But they either have to cut it or they're going to be gone. Yep. And we're going to have standards for everybody and so on. And, of course, they thought it was a bunch of nonsense. Here's some some rich guy saying whatever he had to say until the checks came in at the end of the month. 25% raise across the board. That's right. I mean, and I cannot imagine. I've never heard of another franchise. And it worked. That's the thing. It worked. Dawson, Carter, Reigns, Cromarty, Valentine, Rogers, all these guys came through. Uh, and, And as far as just the personal excitement on your level... Move from Jerry Park to the Big O. The Big O, we could talk forever. We don't have forever. But the players coming through once the new ballpark opened, did you just sort of sit back one day and say, yes, finally, my vision has come to fruition? No, I was just anxious to win. Uh, yeah. And get in the World Series. That was the important right. thing. And we came so, so close. See, it's the only thing I wish we could have, the Blue Monday would have been erased. Yeah, uh, and that we would have won that against the Dodgers because we would have beaten the Yankees just as they did. Expos were a better team that yes, year. They were a better team. It, it's an interesting thing to me too because if you go back and look at those years when they came to seventy nine, eighty, these are strong years. If the wild card were transposed back to then, this would have been like four playoff berths in a row, something right. like that. By the way, I argued for not necessarily the wild card. I argued for expanding the playoffs to two teams from each division. Yeah. Because, and, and people would look at me you know, sort of screwy and say, why do you want to do that? And I said, well, it's a matter of being in contention. I yeah. said, I've been in contention in my town. I've been not in contention. And it's a huge, huge difference. We have a chance. We have a chance. People get all fired up. Yeah. And I said, we don't own this damn game. And the players don't own it. The people own it. So why do we cater to the people? It's a logical point of view. And uh, and then I suggested cutting the season back to 154 games. Well, I'll tell you. It was like the end of the world had arrived. Because that's less revenue. They're and not I, happy about I that. I see these guys with their pencils <laughs> and, and a piece of paper, and they're jotting down, oh, no, we can't do that. I lose so much. I said, you crazy. We'll make more. Everybody will make more. Supply and demand. Well, it's not just supply and demand. If you get an extra team in the, uh, yeah. in the playoffs... You get that much more cities, that much more excitement, that much revenue from that many more fans. Hmm. And to me, it was very simple. And I was, I guess, like Panasonic in those days, slightly ahead of my time. <laughs> nice Panasonic reference. <laughs> um, I also want to ask you, I love the story of Rusty Stop going to the Expos. And we could, I, want, I want to get your thoughts on Rusty in general, but... Basically, the way it goes down is he's just, there's a trade that's been consummated with the Astros, but Bowie Kuhn has to come in. We, we say his name in hushed tones because we don't like Bowie Kuhn here. But, uh, he basically ends up in the conflict, on, in the complex, and you and Gene Mock and John McHale and Rusty just decide to pose for a picture, and then he's suddenly an expo. That's how it's decided that it's going to be that way. <laughs> that, I had nothing to do with that. I was a pawn. <laughs> that was all McHale, Gene Kirby. G. Uh, Kirby, sure. G. Kirby was our traveling secretary, yeah. which was a stitch. He had more damn fun doing that. Uh, I think it was his, it was, it was John's doing, yeah. um, primarily. And I remember going down on the field, I was told I had to go down on the field, and there was Mikhail and Fanning and, uh, Stav and Mock. Yeah. And Kuhn. And I was standing next to Kuhn, and all of a sudden the hand came and so my colleague got me the hell away and wound up with with Kuhn and Stop 
The Slav had his uniform on, number 10. And <laughs> they're standing next to each other, and that picture went viral right across the country. It's the original viral picture. And that was the end of that. It was beautiful. And, 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 then, and then what happened yeah. was, you recall that part of the trade was Don Clendenin. Yes. And Don Clendenin said he wouldn't report. He worked for a pen company. For, for uh, yeah, um, Scripto. Yes. In Atlanta. So John McHale went to Atlanta. And he said, I just got Clendenin on a trade. I said, who did you trade for? And he said, Clendenin. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, we traded Clendenin to the, for the, to the Mets. We had to play great. He became, he became the MVP of the World Series that year. I just love the Amazing. way... Amazing. Yeah, and I just love the way that baseball was operated in those days. Everything, you know, we talked about Theo Epstein and people like that are very admirable, but it was so seat of your pants back then. You know, you'd consummate in a trade in a bar. You would, <laughs> things like, oh, he's in a picture, therefore he's on the team. These things would never happen now. Did that add, I mean, obviously you were in the era you were in, but just thinking about it, it seems like it would be a little bit more fun. Like you're getting your hands a little dirtier in that way, I guess. Well, I don't know whether it was more fun. You know, baseball is so traditional, and the right. attitudes are so traditional. Uh, I mean, when a Theo Epstein came along, or uh, Moneyball. Yeah, Billy Bean. Yeah. Billy Bean. Yeah. I mean, those are total revolutions. Yes. People went crazy. Yes. And it took those types of people to get a little bit more intelligent, because you take the draft picks. I only had to know with an 18-year-old kid, whether his arm is going to get any better, whether his body's going to fill out, whether his emotions are right for that particular club, etc., etc., etc. You don't. So you got to somehow or other size people up an awful lot better than was done in my day. No doubt. Did you have one guy? Did, was it Rusty or Dawson? Did you have one player that you saw like, oh, that was my guy, you know, that you can look back after the fact you could admit to, I really, really liked so-and-so? Well, I really, really liked stuff. Yeah, I really liked him. He had, he had that flair. He had the uh, excitement. Uh, he could say he, he looked like Casey at the bat for God's sake. Yeah, he the really red hair. Him. Yeah, the red hair and the, the way he stood at the bat. Yeah, he, he stood fairly erect. And I, I can still see him. Of course, he's. I I do see him occasionally in West Palm Beach. Yeah, or we had lunch together last year. Oh, wonderful! And uh, he's very heavy. Yeah. Uh, well, the man could cook. He used to bring cooking utensils on the road. He's a gourmet and a gourmand. Yes, he is both. Yeah, no. He likes wine, too. He sure does. He wine. And he integrated himself so well to the city. Here's yes, a guy he who comes from New Orleans, and he's going to take up French. And, and Le Grand Arroche, he was truly beloved on this team that was yes, so is. bad that your son wore number eight, not for Boots Day, but for Willie Stargell. That people would root for the opposing team because the Expos weren't good, but at least it was a way to see Willie Mays come into town or yeah, Willie Stargell. Yeah, that was the idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we had a couple of uh, has-beens yeah. uh, when we did the draft, which was as it should be. Of course. We had, we had some young, young kids who mostly never made it. Yeah. We had Coco LeBoy. They used to get around. Coco LeBoy played third base our first couple of years. My grandfather hated Coco Boy. Coco the girl. <laughs> <laughs> he was not a great ball player. But Mac Jones, I mean, there were guys that clicked. Yeah, yeah. It was an interesting thing. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the Gary Carter thing is so layered and nuanced and complicated because as fans, you know, we love the guy. He was a great player, great smile and all this stuff. But it was a difficult thing. His teammates, they would famously call him lights because when the lights went on, he would go to the camera and that he was... You know, he knew about self-promotion and so forth. And he was a good ball player. 
But from your point of view as an owner, here's a guy who's demanding $2 million a year, which is a heck of a lot of money back then. Maybe he's not the most popular player with his teammates, but he's also a franchise player, and you're you're stuck in this in this tough zone. So, you know, ultimately a decision gets made, we're going to trade this guy. How do you kind of reconcile all of it when thinking about that kind of decision? Because he was rusty number two in some ways. That was the only decision I ever made. Yeah. And I said to uh, Mikhail and Fanny, I said, this is just crazy. We cannot keep Carter. Right. And they said, and I said, I don't like Carter. Frankly, I did not admire him as a player. Hmm. Uh, I think there was too much pressure on him in Montreal. He was, uh, he was the star. Yeah. The kid. Yeah. The he was the offense, and uh, I think there. And he wanted to star. He wanted to hit home runs. Yeah. He wanted to hit uh, doubles and, and so on. He didn't understand the idea of. Uh, Man on second, slap the ball in the right field, hmm. score the run. Yeah, I, I don't think that really occurred to him. Hmm. And uh, but I don't know. But then when he came with the Mets, he was one of many. Yes, and he could start here because he was one of many, and he didn't have to uh, be the star. There are other guys, and everybody had big ego here. Right. So you know, he fit right in. What's the big, but the yeah. big mistake I made was they offered us in that trade Mookie Wilson. Oh, really? And we took Herman Winningham. Why? Because I saw Winning, Winningham in, in September and he looked so good. We will briefly touch on the sad saga of Herman Winningham just because you started to talk about Winningham over uh, Mookie. Mookie would have been a good acquisition. Well, I'm not so sure if Mookie would have, you know. Uh, and he did very well for the Mets he did. Uh, after that, but... I think for a Mookie who was so tied to New York, it could have been quite disruptive for him right. emotionally. He might not have done so. You didn't want to make the Maury Wills mistake. You wanted right. somebody who was right. there because he wanted right. to be there. Right. Um, and, and the problem was that Winningham had done very well in September. Yep. Played like hell, so I said, well, we're going to have a good young player rather than a, a guy who yep. is really being kicked out by the, by the Mets. A couple broader questions. Uh, we just have a few left here. So... Um, I want to give people a sense of what it was, and I've had Tim Raines on the podcast too. Right. I actually had this fellow, Mr. Trudeau, as well, a couple of weeks ago. I went over to Ottawa. It was great. Um, I, t- I talked to Raines about what the atmosphere was like in that 81, 82 period when the team was drawing 2 million fans. And I think, it's, especially we're sitting here in New York, or even if you were in Milwaukee or Cleveland, people would say, there's no way that the Expos played popular baseball. But it happened, right? I mean, that was the place oh, to yeah. see and be seen oh, in the yeah. early 80s. Yeah, it was great. Even, even though it was a terrible ballpark, right. the wrong location, and when uh, a place like Montreal, just like uh, Minnesota, yeah, when you're all huddled up together in the winter, <laughs> and and you know, and all of a sudden you know it's spring when you see a neighbor on the street, yeah, because you don't see anybody all winter. Yeah, uh, you want to be outside in the summertime. Yeah, and uh, so a retractable roof was uh, absolutely mandatory. And of course, ours didn't work. Yeah. So it became a fixed roof. Yeah. And uh, that made it a big, huge barn. Uh, you know, well, you know. I know. The, the, the seats were configured wrong. It was, uh, if you were in the, the 12th row, you were out of the park. You were not on the field. And, and the other you know, thing was that baseball is a pastoral sport. Yeah. You don't put it in a big, tough stadium. No. Roger Tai Bear. Yeah. Yes. Not our favorite person either, not, I suppose. Not at all. And uh, John Drapo and, and the Canadian system 
Regal answer goes for bond issues. Jean Drapeau, shoot first and ask questions later. Absolutely. Um, so the te- and you ended up selling the team. It officially became official in uh, 1991. I want to ask you if there's any, you know, there's a movement now, right? You know this. Of course, your son has come out on the record and said that he might be interested in this. If it were to work, what is the difference between 2017 in Montreal and in MLB versus 1990 when it wasn't going to work? Why could it work now? Because I think French Canada is much more sure of itself. Uh-huh. It, uh, it is the boss in Montreal. Yep. It will decide the fate of, of teams. I think that uh, they genuinely miss Major League Baseball. They want to have the panache of Major League again. Yeah. I think that they, they would build a ballpark of 30, 35,000 people in a very good, good location in downtown. Yep. Uh, and it could fly. Now, they'd have a big problem. The big problem would be television revenue, local television yeah. revenue, and local radio revenue. I don't know how the heck they would do that. They could do it maybe because Bell Canada would, would come up with a lot of bill of it. Sure. And, and they would have to make an arrangement with uh, one of the television networks, which would not be tough because there are now several sports networks in yes. Canada they could use. So it's, it's got a chance. No I, question. I am knocking on wood. One last question, which I do at the end of every podcast, is I always ask the guests for a nugget of wisdom, a life tip, something that, oh, if I met you at a bar, I'd say, oh, it's nice to meet you. I'm Joni. I'd say, I'm Charles. I'd say, so what's your deal? And you would say... What the My deal, deal is. is it's good to meet you, providing yes. you and I share the same values, walk on the same street, and can really do things together. I like that a lot, regardless of, of class or race yeah, yeah, or what, any of that stuff. Doesn't matter. That's good. I like that a lot. Well, thank you. Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure to chat with you. My pleasure. <laughs>